This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Every month, we ask a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. Today, we'll hear The Wood Duck, written by James Thurber and published in 1936. I explain the irony. I think I explain the profound symbolism of a wild duck's becoming attached to a roadside stand. My wife strove simply to understand the duck's viewpoint. She didn't get anywhere. The Wood Duck was chosen by Jonathan Lethem, the author of Motherless Brooklyn and the Fortress of Solitude. He has been contributing stories and essays to The New Yorker for the past five years. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. So The, the Wood Duck is a relatively early piece in the Thurber canon, and it seems unusual to me in that it's not purposefully comical line by line. It's quite a simple story. And yet it was the first thing that you thought of when we talked about doing this program. Why was that? Well, I've always loved this particular story. I grew up reading Thurber, and he's just a favorite of mine uh, generally, and I, I think almost across the board overlooked as an American short story writer. So I suppose I like the wood duck because it helps make a case for him. The fact that he's suppressing his, his comic instincts helps represent that argument that I feel, that he's really one of the great short story writers. But I also am just a sucker for animal stories, and there's something about this duck uh, somehow... <laughs> It's one of the great animal characters, even though you get such a tiny window into its existence. Well, Thurber was intensely popular from the 1920s until the 50s. And now, as you say, he's not really thought of so much anymore. Why do you think we have put him lower on the reading list? Well, just as you know, it's difficult for a great comedy to win an Academy Award and, you know, people underrate Cary Grant as an actor, the kind of clever, endearing quality that Thurber presents tends to be very slightly down market from a kind of sober, serious short story writer. I also think that Thurber declined but kept on writing a lot. And I do think that the best work concentrates quite early and that this stands a little bit in the way. He faded out instead of going out in glory. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There, are, there are no or very, very few late great stories that kind of connect in memory to the earlier work. And if you read a whole lot of Thurber, you come away with a kind of misogynistic uh, hangover. And, it, you know, it doesn't usually damage any one piece. Other people would compare it to listening to too many Bob Dylan albums. After a while, you start to, <laughs> to feel his lifelong grudge, and it, it's a little depressing. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that might also block his contemporary reputation somewhat. Some of that works better just encapsulated in a cartoon where you can laugh for a second and, yeah. and move on. Yeah. Well, the wood duck doesn't really need much of an introduction, but is, do you think there's anything that listeners should keep in mind while they're hearing the story? Oh, well, I, I suppose the only thing to say up front, you know, don't blink or it'll, it, it'll be <laughs> it'll over. Be it, 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 it ends suddenly. So uh, maybe that's the only uh, setup it needs. We'll talk more after the story. Now here's Jonathan Lethem reading The Wood Duck by James Thurber. Mr. Krepp, our vegetable man, had told us we might find some cider out the New Milford Road away. We would come to a sign saying, Morris Plains Farm, and that would be the place. So we got into the car and drove down the concrete New Milford Road, which is black in the center with the dropped oil of a million cars. It's a main trunk highway. You can go 50 miles an hour on it except where warning signs limit you to 40, or, near towns, 35, but nobody ever pays any attention to these signs. Even then, in November, dozens of cars flashed past us with a high, ominous whine their tires roaring rubberly on the concrete. We found Morris Plains Farm without any trouble. There was a big white house to the left of the highway. 
Only a few yards off the road, a small barn had been made into a roadside stand, with a dirt driveway curving up to the front of it. A spare, red-cheeked man stood in the midst of baskets and barrels of red apples and glass jugs of red cider. He was waiting on a man and a woman. I turned into the driveway and put the brakes on hard. I had seen, just in time, a duck. It was a small, trim duck, and even I, who know nothing about wild fowl, knew that this was no barnyard duck, this was a wild duck. He was all alone. There was no other bird of any kind around, not even a chicken. He was immensely solitary. With none of the awkward waddling of a domestic duck, he kept walking busily around in the driveway, now and then billing up water from a dirty puddle in the middle of the drive. His obvious contentment, his apparently perfect adjustment to his surroundings, struck me as something of a marvel. I got out of the car and spoke about it to a man who had driven up behind me in a ratly sedan. He wore a leather jacket and high, hard boots, and I figured he would know what kind of duck this was. He did. That's a wood duck, he said. It dropped in here about two weeks ago, Len says, and's been here ever since. The proprietor of the stand, in whose direction my informant had nodded as he spoke, helped his customers load a basket of apples into their car and walked over to us. The duck stepped, with a little flutter of its wings, into the dirty puddle, took a small, unconcerned swim, and got out again, ruffling its feathers. It's rather an odd place for a wood duck, isn't it? asked my wife. Len grinned and nodded. We all watched the duck. He's a banded duck, said Len. There's a band on his leg. The State Game Commission sends out a lot of them. This one lighted here two weeks ago. It was on a Saturday, and he's been around ever since. It's funny he wouldn't be frightened away with all the cars going by and all the people driving in, I said. Len chuckled. He seems to like it here, he said. The duck wandered over to some sparse grass at the edge of the road, aimlessly, but with an air of settled satisfaction. He's tame as anything, said Len. I guess they get tame when them fellows band them. The man in the leather jacket said, Course, they haven't let you shoot wood duck for a long while, and that might make them tame too. Still, said my wife, we forgot about the cider for the moment, it's strange he would stay here, right on the road almost. Sometimes, said Len reflectively, he goes round back of the barn, but mostly he's here in the drive. But don't they, she asked, let them loose in the woods after they're banded? I mean, aren't they supposed to stock up the forests? I guess they're supposed to, said Len, chuckling again. But Piers, this and didn't want to. An old Ford truck lurched into the driveway, and two men in the seat hailed the proprietor. They were hunters, big, warmly dressed, heavily shod men. In the back of the truck was a large bird dog. He was an old pointer, and he wore an expression of remote disdain for the world of roadside commerce. He took no notice of the duck. The two hunters said something to Len about cider, and I was just about to chime in with my order when the accident happened. A car went by the stand at 50 miles an hour, leaving something scurrying in its wake. It was the duck, turning over and over on the concrete. He turned over and over swiftly but lifelessly, like a thrown feather duster, and then he lay still. My God, I cried, they've killed your duck, Len. 
The accident gave me a quick feeling of anguished intimacy with the bereaved man. Oh, now, he wailed. Now that's awful. None of us for a moment moved. Then the two hunters walked toward the road, slowly, self-consciously, a little embarrassed in the face of this quick, incongruous ending of a wild fowl's life in the middle of a concrete highway. The pointer stood up, looked after the hunters, raised his ears briefly, and then lay down again. It was the man in the leather jacket, finally, who walked out to the duck and tried to pick it up. As he did so, the duck stood up. He looked about him like a person who has been abruptly wakened and doesn't know where he is. He didn't ruffle his feathers. Oh, he isn't quite dead, said my wife. I knew how she felt. We were going to have to see the duck die. Somebody would have to kill him, finish him off. Len stood beside us. My wife took hold of his arm. The man in the leather jacket knelt down, stretched out a hand, and the duck moved slightly away. Just then, out from behind the barn, limped a setter dog, a lean white setter dog with black spots. His right back leg was useless and he kept it off the ground. He stopped when he saw the duck in the road and gave it a point, putting his head out, lifting his front leg, maintaining a wavering, marvelous balance on two legs. He was like a drunken man drawing a bead with a gun. This new menace, this anticlimax, was too much. I think I yelled. What happened next happened as fast as the automobile accident. The setter made his run, a limping, wobbly run, and he was in between the men and the bird before they saw him. The duck flew, got somehow off the ground a foot or two, and tumbled into the grass of the field across the road, the dog after him. It seemed crazy, but the duck could fly, a little anyway. Here, here, said Len weakly. The hunters shouted, I shouted, my wife screamed. He'll kill him, he'll kill him. The duck flew a few yards again, the dog at his tail. The dog's third plunge brought his nose almost to the duck's tail, and then one of the hunters tackled the animal and pulled him down and knelt in the grass, holding him. We all breathed easier. My wife let go Len's arm. Len started across the road after the duck, who was fluttering slowly, waveringly, but with a definite purpose, toward a wood that fringed the far side of the field. The bird was dazed, but a sure, atavistic urge was guiding him. He was going home. One of the hunters joined Len in his pursuit. The other came back across the road, dragging the indignant setter. The man in the leather jacket walked beside them. We all watched Len and his companion reach the edge of the wood and stand there, looking. They had followed the duck through the grass slowly, so as not to alarm him. He had been alarmed enough. He'll never come back, said my wife. Len and the hunter finally turned and came back through the grass. The duck had got away from them. We walked out to meet them at the edge of the concrete. Cars began to whiz by in both directions. I realized, with wonder, that all the time the duck and the hunters and the setter were milling around in the road, not one had passed. It was as if traffic had been held up so that our little drama could go on. He couldn't have been much hurt, said Len. Likely just grazed and pulled along in the wind of the car. Them fellows don't look out for anything. It's a sin. My wife had a question for him. Does your dog always chase the duck? She asked. Oh, that ain't my dog, said Len. He just comes around. The hunter who had been holding the setter now let him go, and he slunk away. The pointer, I noticed, 
lay with his eyes closed. But doesn't the duck mind the dog? persisted my wife. Oh, he minds him, said Len. But the dog's never really hurt him none yet. There's always somebody around. We drove away with a great deal to talk about. I almost forgot the cider. I explained the irony. I think I explained the profound symbolism of a wild duck's becoming attached to a roadside stand. My wife strove simply to understand the duck's viewpoint. She didn't get anywhere. I knew even then, in the back of my mind, what would happen. We decided, after a cocktail, to drive back to the place and find out if the duck had returned. My wife hoped it wouldn't be there, on account of the life it led in the driveway. I hoped it wouldn't because I felt that would be, somehow, too pat an ending. Night was falling when we started off again for Morris Plains Farm. It was a five-mile drive, and I had to put my bright lights on before we got there. The barn door was closed for the night. We didn't see the duck anywhere. The only thing to do was to go up to the house and inquire. I knocked on the door, and a young man opened it. Is... is the proprietor here? I asked. He said no. He had gone to Waterbury. We wanted to know, my wife said, whether the duck came back. What? he asked, a little startled, I thought. Then, oh, the duck. I saw him around the driveway when my father drove off. He stared at us, waiting. I thanked him and started back to the car. My wife lingered, explaining for a moment. He thinks we're crazy, she said, when she got into the car. We drove on a little distance. Well, I said, he's back. I'm glad he is, in a way, said my wife. I hated to think of him all alone out there in the woods. That was Jonathan Lethem reading James Thurber's story, The Wood Duck. It was first published in the magazine in 1936 and is collected in The Thurber Carnival, published by Harper Perennial Modern Classics. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com actionplan 
Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker-slash-dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Jonathan, Thurber said in one interview, any humorist must be interested in trivia and every little thing that occurs in a household. And in general, he did something that not that many writers can get away with these days. He made this very absorbing, moving, funny fiction out of the entirely ordinary details of life. In short, what happens in this story is a duck gets hit by a car and chased by a dog and doesn't die. It's almost like a children's story, yet at the same time we get glimpses of other more complicated things going on. How difficult is that to do, to have a quite seemingly simple story that has more of a subtext? Well, I think any time something this seemingly glancing or casual can bear as much energy and life as the wood duck somehow collects to itself, it's a little miracle, and not every writer who can do it can do it over and over again. You know, one of the things he does here, of course, is rely on an ambiguity between a first-person anecdote that's nonfiction and the idea of a short story. Do you think this happened to him? I'd guess that something quite like this happened to him. But more importantly, in the text, he doesn't take any care to discourage our thinking that this is Thurber and Thurber's wife. Mm -hmm. You're invited to make that projection. And even if you assume that it's Thurber and his wife, what do you know about Thurber and his wife from just this story? Mm -hmm. Absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, you wouldn't know that the narrator is a writer or has any other particular occupation, except that you project it. He likes cider. He likes cider, exactly. They're on a, they're on a, a cider run. Yeah. That's, that's all that's stated. And in the same way that a good cartoon or stick figure will invite a kind of intimate projection, these cider-seeking motorists become perfect vehicles for our own sense of projection towards the duck, towards the incident, towards the idea of the natural environment, and also towards the idea of a kind of agrarian, rural environment. There are obviously sophisticated people in their attitude toward towards the hunters right. and the proprietor of the stand. But at the same time, that very sophistication makes them awkwardly and endearingly naive. They don't know anything about the behavior of ducks. Yeah. They need to be told everything about what, <laughs> what they're seeing here. And to them, it's kind of wondrous, whereas to the country people, it's curious, but it simply is. Mm-hmm. Until they drive in, the duck is a duck. And what do you think? Is the duck a duck? I mean, is the duck meant to simply be a duck? Or is there... <laughs> yeah, Thurber has that line about explaining the profound symbolism of the duck and right. the farm stand. Right. Is he meant to be symbolic of something here? Well, again, it's a very clever trick there where he says, well, of course you, the reader, and I, the writer, are projecting symbolism onto the duck. And of course it's ludicrous that we're doing it. He preempts your thinking that too much is being made of nothing by making fun of himself for seeing the duck as being in any way symbolic. So by alluding to it, he gets his cake and eats it too. Um, The story seems to me very visually mapped out. Each movement is sort of plotted on an arc. The duck goes here, it goes there. They're in the driveway. The truck pulls in here at this angle. Do you think that Thurber's skill and career as as an illustrator and a cartoonist has an effect on his writing in that way? Well, I mean, that's a funny question because, of course, his cartoons are beautiful and he thinks visually and it's like a, a little diorama. It's almost like a drama in a snow globe or something where you can see all the figures. But he was also famously the blind cartoonist, right? So, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe this early on he wasn't so completely blind as he was later. But it's strange to think of him as a visual writer because he was sort of inventing the visual world 
And I mean, didn't he have to do those drawings on kind of enormous sheets of paper and have them? By the uh, end, he had to dictate everything and, and so on. But yeah. I think early on, it was one eye that he had trouble he was, with and yeah. the other eye was okay. Yeah. But, yeah, but he's very careful to map this. Absolutely. You, know, you could draw a diagram and, and plot it out. Well, and the way he makes you see the dog, it's um, also like a perfect little short film. The dog sits up, the dog sits down. He casts it in terms of glances, the way a, a filmmaker will always be aware of whose eyes you're looking through in every shot. This thing has a series of different perspective switches mm -hmm. very naturally and very rapidly. Thank you, Jonathan. Oh, my pleasure. This was great. You can read four stories by Jonathan Latham on our website, newyorker.com. You can listen to previous fiction podcasts as well as other free New Yorker podcasts. Just go to newyorker.com or visit the iTunes store and type New Yorker into the search bar. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by newyorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>